Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, my friend. I hope you are well. I hope you're having a nice week. As I mentioned on the podcast last week, I am technically taking this week off, she says, as she records at her desk on the Tuesday. Um, In theory, I'm taking this week off. I'm trying to take this week off. And as a result, I don't have your usual episode for you today. However, I do have a recording of the live show I recently did in the Sugar Club where I had a long conversation with Holly Cairns. You know Holly Cairns as the leader of the Social Democrats. She is a young TD who only became uh, active in politics in recent years and I thought it would be so fascinating and as it turns out it was to learn about how she came to politics in the first place why she decided it was a career she wanted and why she's so passionate about staying in it and actually making change in Ireland as well as kind of demystifying how you actually do that because I think you know I I mean, first of all, politics for women doesn't always seem that attractive when you read about the way people are treated. But secondly, a lot of us wouldn't even know where to begin. I mean, how do you begin to become politically active? So I hope you find this chat useful. Holly is lovely and so smart and we laughed a lot. Um, But I also found it incredibly educational and I hope it does that for you too. And I will be back with a normal episode next Friday. And don't forget as well, there's a new Patreon episode up this week too. Myself and Sophie White chat about the Lewis Capaldi documentary that uh, recently started streaming on Netflix. It is so good. Sophie had so much insight to offer. Um, kind of in terms of mental illness and the pressure on creatives to be creative despite the fact that they may not be in the best headspace so that's available now if you want to sign up for patreon the link is in the show notes but now i hope you enjoyed this chat with holly which took place at the sugar club two weeks ago i am so thrilled um that my next guest agreed to be here tonight with me i uh, just admire her so much I think, you know, when I talked about kind of the tension and the anxiety that a lot of us are still carrying now, I think in a way it's kind of worse than ever before. It's really easy to feel very hopeless at the moment in Ireland, I think, where you're all stressed and concerned about the housing crisis. If it's not impacting us directly, it's impacting someone that we know. Um, You know, there is a real sense of hopelessness, I think, at times. But my next guest genuinely makes me feel hopeful and optimistic about the direction that our country is going in. So please, will you welcome Holly Cairns. (laughs) 
Now, will we pour ourselves some water, Holly? I think that's a good idea that's in case we idea. get thirsty. Thank you. Um, so, just in case there's anyone in the room who doesn't know, Holly is a TD, and she recently became the leader of the Social Democrats. Um, Holly was accused of being a child by Joe Biden last week um, because she <laughs> is so youthful. Um, and I think that that's one, one of the reasons that people feel very excited about you, because I think you make a lot of us feel like there is representation of us in the doll in a way that maybe we don't otherwise feel. Um, but let's go back to the very beginning. How did you get into politics at all? That's a good question. I think I was probably an unsuspecting um, candidate. And uh, like lots of people, I hadn't really paid any attention to Irish politics. And I kind of finished school in 2008, mm -hmm. around the time of the crash. And I felt quite disillusioned with it. And kind of almost felt like the word political party, for example, was like a dirty word, that we couldn't trust any of them, that they were all just kind of involved with bright envelopes like that was just the feeling I had as somebody who wasn't particularly engaged yeah and like lots of people my age moved abroad after school after college all of that stuff and it wasn't until I think the first time I kind of noticed or got involved or engaged in any way was um, I was living abroad in Malta and I was working in disability services and the marriage equality referendum was happening back home and I knew I was going to move home eventually to take on my family farm and business. Um, and I thought, look, I'm going to go back early and just to make sure that I can vote for that. Mm. And I really had that feeling that time that, like, we always have a kind of a government that's like, when there's a positive change, they're, like, really dragged along by the people. There's all these amazing campaigners. I didn't meet a single politician in my constituency at that time <laughs> campaigning for marriage equality. And then uh, that was kind of it. And then I was going about... Uh, and how old business. were you at that stage? Like 20s, 25 or something like that. Yeah. It was 2015, I think, marriage equality. Yeah. And then um, I was trying to learn then how to... Uh, see, uh, my family business is a vegetable seed business, so I was busy trying to learn about all of that kind of stuff, and I did a master's in it and about climate change and was becoming kind of engaged in different issues that, like everything, is political. You don't yeah. realise it until, you know, a certain point, but then um, the repeal referendum came around. And there was like the Together for Yes training in my local town in the hotel. And you'd go and learn how to knock on doors, how to talk to people about voting yes for repeal and things like that. And I became one of the canvas leads because it was like quite a sparse amount of people turned up for the training. And it was like just a light bulb moment for me that I was like knocking on doors, asking people to vote is how we can actually affect change. And you said they're like the, the, the feeling of no hope and disillusionment and stuff like, that was 100% me. Yeah. I was like, there's no hope for this crowd. And then it was that realisation, like everyone said, I'm from Cork Southwest, so it was one of the furthest constituencies from the Dáil. And everyone said, like, it's not a hope people in Cork Southwest would ever vote for marriage equality or abortion rights or, you know, all of these things we were consistently voting for. Yeah. And having knocked on those doors, I just felt then suddenly so unrepresented. Yeah. So I was like, you know, how is this, who's representing me? And there was another couple of things, like small things I remember hearing about, like the, the funding for greyhound racing and the kind of uh, treatment of survivors of Magdalene laundries and industrial schools and different things like that and thinking, I don't understand how these are decisions that are made on our behalf or whatever. And so two women that I met canvassing in Repeal who I'd never met before, um, the three of us decided we'd join a political party, that mm. that was how you do it. And like, you can feel hopeless, 
but like we are in charge of how the country is run by virtue of who we elect to run it and yeah. that in and of itself gives you can give you hope yeah you know? um so we formed a branch of the social democrats and um it's a kind of a small growing party particularly back then it was very new we hadn't had a local election and to say like I didn't have knowledge or experience in politics is an understatement. I didn't know that the local election was coming up six months after we formed that branch. <laughs> and then I was like, what's the local electoral area here? Who are the representatives? You know, I wasn't, it just wasn't in my kind of life or on my radar in any way whatsoever. And the two other women, Claire and Pamela, who I'd met were like, not a hope of my running in that, but to build a branch and to build a party you have to start like that. Three yeah. people on a kitchen table starting a branch and standing somebody reluctantly in the local election. But from knocking on the doors and repeal and marriage equality, I knew in some part of me <laughs> that there was a hope. Like yeah. People laughed in my face, said, no hope of getting elected. But like some part of me knew that eventually there was a chance of a more progressive candidate getting elected in my constituency. I think it's amazing because I remember at the time there was a lot of writing. I know Una Mullally did a lot of writing about the fact that those referenda did make younger people engage with politics in a way that they hadn't previously mm. and that she felt we would see the results of that in the future. And I mean, this story is literally that. Do you think it had that impact on lots of other people? I think in terms of like making us engaged in politics and how it impacts yeah. on us, because I don't know about everyone else, but I just didn't really see the direct, like I said, maybe, you know, maybe that shouldn't have been a light bulb moment for me. Maybe everybody else knew that knocking on doors, asking for votes, getting different people elected or different results from a referendum is how you change things. But like, I do think that a lot of people got more engaged at that yeah. point. And I think ever since we've been feeling that, change yeah like that the tide is finally turning in Irish politics we've had the same two political parties in power since the foundation of the state and I think I have the feeling of feeling like sometimes change can be so slow that like la the last election vote left transfer left all of that yeah. how did we end up with the same two parties again yeah that then it feels slow but to realize when you zoom out that historically they would have had 90% of the vote and one or other in power, that now they can barely cling on to power in together, that it's like, this is the time. We can all feel the tide is turning. Yeah. And I think just now is the time to really kind of go for it. And I think we're going to see a change. And I've become more and more passionate about the kind of change that I think that we would all like if we were given the option, because other countries would have like a left party and a right party and vote based on policies. And in Ireland, we've got like two civil war parties with very similar politics, kind of historically, and a really unique political landscape, kind yeah. of understandably because we have a unique history. Yeah, as a result of our history, exactly. But we've learned kind of what voting for the same thing over and over again does, and that's yeah. the same kind of result over and over again. And yeah, so it just seemed like the thing to do in the moment and kind of all spiralled out of control. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely want to talk about kind of how you see things going or what you would hope for the country but before we get there so you you decide you're gonna you started off in local politics right yes. in as a councillor um, and how was that experience um really interesting and I wish I had more time on the council so actually amazing my first ever election 2019 was that local election six months after the repeal or seven months after the repeal referendum and I lost by one vote in that uh. election then I called a recount, and I won by one vote. Sorry, where did that? 
where did that like chutzpah come from? Because like, I'm great at being like, yeah, like, I mean, obviously politics, you could do it, it works, you could do it, but like, I'm not doing it. Where did you, where did you find, like, where did the drive come from to not only do it, but then to kind of ask for a recount? Like, you know, that's ballsy. Honestly, they were things I learned as I went along. Like, you know, speaking to the, the party, like, uh, head office up in Dublin at the time and saying you know these are the results and they're saying Holly if it's within like 20 votes you're going to have to call a recount and me thinking how do I do that yeah. I don't know how to call a recount and ringing other people to ask how to do that so genuinely I just was kind of figuring it out as I went along and what kind of attitudes did you meet as a woman in your 20s like you know, I presume there were people who were more established, maybe in local politics, who felt there was a way that things went, who might not have been so impressed to see you. Mm. Yeah, and like that, like literally um, people laughing in my face and telling me I hadn't a chance. And that kind of like, I remember feeling really embarrassed about that. And like, mm. um, and thinking, God, maybe I don't have a chance. And I probably even don't have a chance. And like at times finding people to go out and canvas with you or for you when you start out like that, no one wants to because they're even if they're supportive like a little bit embarrassed for you they don't think you're going to get elected um and like when I think back now I remember one day going to Kilcrahan as a part of my constituency um some people may have been to crack on the coast great festival in Kilcrahan but um I remember canvassing there by myself on a day because I couldn't get someone to come with me and like feeling like why am I knocking on doors by myself like what I'll look back on this and laugh but sure look you know, I'm going to keep going. And when I think back to that day now, that if I hadn't got, if I got one vote out of that day, yeah, that's the difference from getting that local election seat. And I wouldn't probably have gotten the dual seat if I didn't have that platform in the council. And talk about the best get out to vote campaign. Couldn't have written it if I tried to say, people messaging me when I lost by one vote, like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I meant to register. I didn't get around to it. Or like, I was really tired after work and I just didn't get to the polling station. And then when I won by one vote, um, I remember getting a message from one woman who said she had finished work and she was really tired and she had an early start and she was just, no, I'm not like, mm. you know, what's one vote? Yeah. And she had two daughters and they were like, please go out and vote for this new candidate. We really, really want you to do it. And she did. So I'm always like, that's, wow. the, that's the one vote. <laughs> and isn't that amazing that it was her daughters? You know, because that, again, is an indication of a more like invigorated, young generation of people who can see that their vote matters. An unrepresented one. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, sorry, because your question was about the attitudes on the council. Yeah. And like, yeah, I suppose when a whole like 50% of the population isn't that well represented. Mm. There is a kind of, um, like, a, the women stand out then, kind yeah. of, on the council. And, like, um, to give an example, and like, I was only on the council for seven months because then the general election was called. Um, but I remember on the very first day, um, and like I said, talk about trying to figure it out as I went along, everyone arrives on the first day of the council with all of their family and their supporters and all that. I didn't know that, so I turned up by myself. Oh. And um, so I was just kind of sitting there whilst everyone was there with their families and mingling and stuff. And, um, hey guys. <laughs> and um, there was like a kind of uh, long-term councillor who has been there for a long time, um, an older man. And he went around to some of the, like, the new candidates. And because I was just sitting there by myself, I was watching it. And he was saying, like, you know, well done, James, for example. Great campaign, well-deserved, good fight, and congratulations. And went around to all the different candidates, congratulating them in that way. 
And when he came to me and I was the only woman, uh, he patted me on the shoulder and said, well done, you look great. <laughs> um, yes. But it's sounds, kind of a... <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, oh, it just makes me so murderous. Like, yeah. it's so <laughs> annoying. And how did you respond? I don't think I did. You know, I'd love to say that I stood up and said, how dare you? You know, I didn't. Yeah. I just kind of... Uh, yeah, you know. thanks. <laughs> Great. You too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, seven months later, it all changes. And so how did that happen? Because, I mean, that's not the standard, is it, really, for people to kind of have that short of a time in politics before they become a TD. Mm. And goes to show the appetite for change. Yeah. And so even more so in the general election I was written off, like in the locals when they did the predictions and they talked about all the different candidates, they didn't mention me in the article. <laughs> and when we asked them, they were like, well, look, there's no, she has no chance kind of getting a seat. So they didn't even mention me, except in one of the other electoral areas that there was a Social Democrats candidate, they said, perhaps they should have stood Holly in this area and didn't mention me in the one that I was standing in or whatever. Mm. And uh, in the general election then, like it's a three-seater, and like we were talking about the political landscape in Ireland, you kind of Athena Fall, Athena Gale, and then in my constituency, is an independent who has more votes than Mary Lou MacDonald. You know what I mean? Right. So it's kind of seen as like closed shop. You cannot get a seat in that constituency. And it's the, seen as the kind of heartland of Fine Gael, where the original Michael Collins was from and uh, TD4. Um, so it was the first time that Fine Gael didn't get a seat when I got one. So it was just seen as something that wouldn't be yeah. a possibility. But like... Like that, when you knock on doors for repeal or something, you see how people feel and feel unrepresented, and there's just kind of a narrative that suits the establishment that oh, these rural constituencies would never vote for progressive politicians, and like obviously as a rural woman, I find that really offensive because yeah. just because I'm from a rural area or anyone is, it doesn't mean we don't kind of understand facts or know yeah. how to engage in meaningful debate. Yeah. Like um, so I think there's like a whole swathe of areas all across the country who would be absolutely crying out for an alternative but without being offered one you can't really expect people to vote for it so I feel really positively about the future and you know as long as we can kind of the thing about it is as well for like a party like mine like you know I was up against like the established parties would have like I tried to explain you know there's like a national school in every parish or Mm. two and there's like a box there where you go and vote. They'd have a cam- canvassing team for every box in the constituency, so like for every parish. And like I would be like asking like my aunt, my mom, yeah. like getting all these people to try and come out and vote. Um, so when you're up against that kind of machine, I think for me the repeal the eighth training. I hadn't real. I don't realise it nearly until now looking back how valuable that was you're saying talk to your mum talk to your granny talk to your brother you know those conversations that we had at the doors that that kind of like we need in order to actually get the seats in the constituencies people to help us in that way and to say like you know okay if you agree thank you for the support at the door can you please ask your friends your whoever it is wherever they are if, if you agree with that, yeah. to ask them to vote as well, because that kind of people power, we've seen it yeah. so effective in this country yeah. that when people are voting for something like a fairness or an equality, that they will, and they'll come out. If they're given that option, they'll probably vote for it. That's what I've learned. Yeah. And it's only now we're starting to see the different policies in terms of the different parties and the different left and right spectrum as 
voting for that fairness or equality rather than, well, look, my family. Like, people go, you know yourself in Ireland, it's like, they say I'm Fianna Fáil, like they say I'm Irish. Yeah. And it's only now that we're starting to realise, actually, maybe I don't really identify that much as feeling, you know, yeah. as much a part of that party because I don't agree with the housing policy, I don't agree with the disability services or whatever it might be, yeah. uh, that finally there is that kind of change and I just think we need to offer people yeah. a, a good alternative. It's not, it kind of reminds me of the way people are just automatically Catholic and like, you know, there yeah. maybe isn't a lot of thought put into it, but that actually a lot of people I feel need to really assess their Catholicism and I think probably politically as well. Like, are you voting in a certain way because that's the way that your parents voted? Have you actually thought about the policies? Have you actually thought about the, you know, the the beliefs of the Catholic Church, do they really line up with you? Um, and I suppose what you're saying is, you know, being politically engaged, you know, with things that were kind of easy enough to understand, mm. repeal and, you know, together for yes, um, or marriage equality, like, it was easy to get people engaged and once once you see it then. I'm actually interested, um, would you put your hand up if you canvassed at all for either of those referenda? Yeah. There's a good few. I had a feeling. I love that. That makes me mm. feel so happy. Mm. <laughs> um, and do you feel that it made you feel more kind of mm, empowered politically? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's so good to hear. So you went, obviously, for election. Did you believe when you were going for a seat in that three-seat constituency that you could do it? Or were you just like, I'll give it a go? Uh, no, I did on some level think that I would get it all right, yeah. And I think, look, the reality is if you're going for an election, you have to believe on some level that you're going to get it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I suppose I'd learned what it was like to be laughed in the face yeah. kind of during the locals, so we just kind of powered on with our own campaign and, yeah, I did think that there was a hope for sure. And how did you feel on the day of the count? Uh, top feeling was probably exhausted. Yeah. Difficult to describe an election <laughs> campaign. Um, but yeah, kind of hopeful and was on the, yeah, got in in the final count, got the third seat. So it was kind of a, I think it was at five o'clock in the morning. Wow. Um, so really exhausted. Really exhausted. Did they hoosh you up on their shoulders? No. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about that generally as a practice? I gave strict instructions of you know hooshing. I said, it, was too, it was too embarrassing. It's All the other so candidates did not, I can't handle it. Yeah. And those like, people ask me, why didn't they hoosh you? Like, and no. you were like, no hooshing. <laughs> it's like, especially when it's like grown men hooshing another grown yeah. man up on their shoulders. It's so embarrassing. Yeah, and if you watch them doing the... <laughs> it really reminds me of like when I was pregnant, every time I would get my photograph taken at an event or whatever, the photographer would always try and make me stand to the side with my hands on my bump. And I was like, no, this is... <laughs> so embarrassing and like the one time I did do what a photographer asked me to do it was the first time I ever filled in for Ryan Tuberty they came in to take photographs in the studio and the photographer was like come on can you do something a bit jazzy like if Ryan was here he'd give the thumbs up and I was like <laughs> and that's the photo that was used for years afterwards in that newspaper for years like um, okay, well, that, I'm so, I'm just, that actually, I, I love to hear that, that you didn't um, subscribe to that. <laughs> so then how did you find the transition into, you know, being in the doll? Because presumably that was another kind of baptism of fire and you were learning as you went along. Definitely, yeah. And I think, you know, you always feel like 
those people in politics that there's some other type of people who know something that we don't. Yes. Or have some special ability or knowledge or have had a special invitation or something. Yeah. And that you kind of think, what am I doing here? Yeah. Kind of a thing, you know? And like one of the weirdly reassuring things is like that they're not anything. Like everyone's just a, a normal person there. A lot of people in there have been kind of born into that seat in some way or other. Like, you know, it's been passed through the family over and over again. And that's, I suppose, a special invitation of sorts. But they're not a special particular type of person who has a massive understanding of every single particular policy and the intricacies of that yeah. and the effect that EU law would have on that and all of these different things that you're kind of learning and figuring out. They're just... Um, oftentimes keeping the family seat or doing different things like that and yeah that like I suppose it was more of a realization of like we really need to change this um and yeah a really steep learning curve just in terms of how it works and a transition into like a long like commute every week from from where I live to Leinster House it's like a four and a half hour drive but like if you stop for coffee or anything like that like a five you know, five-hour trip, so it's kind of a, yeah, it's, there's been a lot of change, but, um, you know, like, it's a really, like, rewarding job as well, and it's a real honour to represent people yeah. in your area and outside of that, and, you know, try and fight for things that haven't necessarily been kind of fought for before and everything, so for the most part, it's been a real honour, and yeah. I've really enjoyed it, and feel very lucky to be doing it. Yeah, I want to get into some of those issues, but before we do, um, you obviously recently became the leader of the Social Democrats. I mean, that is remarkable, Holly. Like, to be, yes. To be this early in your political career, you know, to have that position, how does it feel? Um, It does, like, like, what what was I thinking? (laughs) No, Um, no, it feels like, again, like a real honour. And, like, I think it's... The fact that a young, new female politician from Cork Southwest has become the leader of a political party is more testament to the Social Democrats than to me. So, you know, founded by two women, Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall, two of the, like, most amazing, hard-working, experienced politicians in the country, in my opinion, and they really stood out to me in Irish politics, um, not just their policies, but those two women is part of the reason I joined the party. Mm. Um, you know... Roisin on health and slaunch care and kind of always choosing principle over power, an unusual thing to see. And Catherine's kind of corruption exposing activities and kind of this, maybe like it's a part of as well being kind of a female-led party. Um, And then, you know, getting to know there's uh, the four of us as well. Then there's me and Gary and Kian and Jen and like, the fact that they all supported me and were, you know, encouraging and like really behind me when I said I was going to go for it is just, I think, a really nice thing about being a part of a modern party. And I think mm. sometimes, you know, being a new party like that, we talked, I said, you know, not having a well-oiled machine and all of the constituencies like a huge disadvantage in so yeah. many ways. And we have so much building and work to do. We need to recruit and find people and canvassers and candidates and all of these things. But yeah. like also being new has so many advantages because we're not kind of like stuck in our ways. You know, we try and like when there's kind of an an old institution and everyone in it is institutionalized and then like the two biggest political parties in the country, you'd find they're always like, oh, you know, these two parties put 200,000 last year into trying to engage women in politics and somehow failed. And it's like, 
what a disaster. Like, this isn't going to work. You know, it's not working. Yeah. And then you've got a new organization and like, we, like, not by design or effort or putting any amounts of thousands into it, but just have a majority female TDs, a majority female councillors, the senior political director is a woman, the chair of the national executive. You know, it's like when you don't have to break through all of these institutional ingrained ways, it's easier and it's nicer and it's quicker. And like, I always just think that you couldn't really go about governing a society that actually promotes equality if you can't even achieve that within your political party. So a huge advantage, I think, is that we don't have to try and change all of our own ways. We just have to try and build. And I'd rather be like that kind of looking forward and focusing on the future rather than what I've always felt about Irish politics is like the past, Mm. which is hugely important to shaped our country in so many ways. But the political focus on it, I don't think does us any kind of favours. And so I think the reason that it's happened and I've become the leader of the party is because of the party that I'm in. And I think that was a good choice. I'm glad I went for the social Yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Um, well, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, I had this idea actually back when I was on 2FM. Um, I was like, I want to do something where I get, it was, I had you in my head and like a couple of other, maybe from other parties, uh, female TDs to, to convince people to get involved. Because the story that we hear about women in politics is that it's a very difficult life that the abuse that you face is disgusting. I know you've been through some really difficult stuff, and I think every woman in politics has those stories. So when those are the stories that we hear, you're kind of like, why would anyone do it, you know? So that's my question to you. Yeah. (laughs) Why would you do it? Why should they do it? Yeah. Like, I think the only way... Like, there's a particular type of abuse that women get. There's different types of abuse that politicians get. Yes. And then there's a particular type of abuse that female politicians get. And the only way to address that particularly kind of targeted abuse of women in politics is to have more women in politics. So I would just say, we need lots of women to do it, like we need lots of women often to do loads of things and be in a firing line when they shouldn't have to. And then we'll help the next generation along. It's just part of the change and, like... 
it's not all bad either. Like I spoke about the kind of the privilege and the joy and stuff there. Like sometimes it's difficult as a female politician, um, but sometimes it's difficult as a female anything. Yes. So I would just say, don't let that be the, the thing that you focus on if you're thinking mm. about going into politics. There's so much more to it than that. And ultimately the only way to address it is by having more female representation. I just don't think it would be as targeted yeah. if there were more of us. Like I always give the example, there's... Uh, is it 16 or 18 TDs for Cork and it's the biggest county in the country and I'm the only woman representing all of Cork City and County and I just don't think that I would have the same targeted amount of views if there was more you know yeah. when it's that kind of particularly gendered yeah. um, there's six times more Michaels representing Cork than women <laughs> right. so we just need more women and I think things will get better. Yeah. So it <laughs> well, can't I be think... a deterrent. It has to be an incentive. <laughs> <laughs> when you mentioned policy over power there, um, from what I've read, that seems to be a common trait of female politicians internationally, um, that maybe we have less of an interest in power for power's sake, um, which is why I want more female politicians, and just for, you know, for the sake of representation. Um, and as you've mentioned, I certainly have felt more represented by some of the things that you have said in the doll than any other politician. Um, and, you know, we have to talk now about housing, because... I feel like I think about it all day, every day, um, and I'm in a pretty okay position. I don't own a house, but I'm in a relatively secure position, and I feel very lucky um, that, I, that I am. But I hear so many heartbreaking stories, and I'm sure it's not a chip on what you hear. And I just can't believe that we are here, and that you know today you're reading about you know billions of euro in surplus, money that the government has at the end or is, is looking like it's going to have at the end of this year and yet we are where we are with housing and I think a lot of people feel really hopeless so give us some hope Holly yeah. <laughs> like I suppose there's no point in going into like in-depth like yeah. intricate housing policy and like a lot of people will know it anyway because it's become such a huge issue in all of our lives but I just think kind of the if you zoom out there's a crisis and there's a huge emergency and it's a complete disaster the tragedy the different stories and the same as you like it's too much to even think of sometimes yeah and then there's with an emergency like that and the huge impact that it's having on so many people there's two ways to address it one is treating it like an absolute emergency and I think one of the good things that came from COVID is that we can see what an emergency response looks like from a government. Yeah. And then there's another way to approach it, which is just like politicians coming out and really perfecting the art of kind of perfect the, defending their policy and doing it really like articulately and almost convincingly and using lots of figures and promises and things we've heard before. And a lot of effort going into that, I think. You know, mm. the kind of narrative that they come out with and stuff. And none of that same effort going into perfecting their policy. And, you know, when you, like, commit to something and dig your heels in more and more and more, mm. and it becomes harder and harder and harder to admit that you did it wrong. You know, that, like, you've made a mistake. Yeah. We need to change the approach. And that kind of, your inner, like... Um, 
like the humility of it and your ego and all the things that you just can't quite like admit that that's what's happened. Mm. I think that's what we're looking at because there's another way to approach this. And that's not just spouting out the same, we plan to build this many thousand social affordable homes in the next five years and this, the same things that we've been hearing for like, you know, 12 years of Fine Gael governments now. There's an emergency response and that's not happening. So like one example of that, um, and there's loads, but I think it's just something that we can all really see, <laughs> understand and feel disillusioned about is like vacant homes. Yeah. So there's, you know, up to 100,000 vacant homes around the country. The government finally introduced a tax on that because it's like in an emergency, people are on the street, the emergency accommodation is full. Why is there 100,000 vacant homes around the country? So they introduced a 0.3% tax on that. So that's an acknowledgement that this one needs to be addressed. But that's like pretending to care because they introduced a 0.3% tax at a time when house price inflation was at 10%. So if I'm somebody who's sitting on a vacant property because I want to increase the value of it or I'm waiting to see what I want to do with it, a 0.3% tax is like an incentive to keep sitting on this property that has risen 10% in value. And that's just one example. There's loads of other ones we could draw on. And so even tomorrow, we have a a bill, a a motion coming forward to the Dáil to put a 10% tax on vacancy. And that wouldn't apply, for example, to somebody who's in a nursing home. There's exemptions already within this. You know, it's not an unreasonable thing in many situations. If there's derelict farm buildings, that doesn't apply either. That's a dereliction issue in in an area that there isn't a need. All of those things. It's something they could do in the morning. We're bringing forward a motion in the morning and they'll reject it and continue to pursue with their policy. And like one of the other things that I've really learned... Um, since going into politics is the impact of lobbying. Mm. And so we get lobbied like regularly from different organisations. So like the, I'm spokesperson for agriculture for my party. I grew up on a farm. I studied it in university and stuff like that. And I get lobbied by the IFA regularly. And they're really organised about meeting me and at their particular asks and giving me the language to, to make that case and all of this stuff. And I remember noticing it during COVID with the maternity restrictions in hospitals. Like, that was a policy that needed to be adjusted, to be reasonable, to be suitable, to be all of these different things. And realising, like, oh, yeah, but, like, like people who've just given birth or just about to give birth don't have an organised lobby. No. <laughs> so none of the politicians are talking about this. Yeah. And the same thing applies in every single department. You see, like, how is it, for example, in healthcare, that... We're the only country in like Western Europe who have a two-tiered system where you have to pay like 60 euro to see a GP and stuff. And, oh, who, who's benefiting? Oh, like private companies, who, like private interests who do lobby as well. Mm. And, you know, I can only presume it's the same in housing. The, the private housing, you know, the vulture, none of them lobby me. Yeah. But of course they lobby government and decisions are made and they've got like all of these arguments to protect like the interests that are not of, pe- of people who are facing eviction. Yeah. And I can only kind of imagine those arguments are coming from lobbying because I've experienced it in the departments that I'm the spokesperson for. Yeah. So I think we kind of just need to realise that that's how it works. Yeah. And you know the way there's that expression that like you become um, as good or as bad or as this or as that much of the people, you, the five people you spend the most time with. Mm. That's what you're hearing. That's what you're kind of thinking. And those organised lobbies that are really funded have a huge impact then on politicians because that's what they're paid like, to, to do and to convince people of. And 
Um, I just think at this point with housing in general, like understandably everyone feels really disillusioned and like there's no hope, yeah. but it's a little bit like any of the other things we can talk about. And I often find it with when I meet families who people who are disabled or who have a disabled child that like all I can nearly say at this point is like, we just need to change the government. You know, like, there's no kind of... You can make representations on behalf of individuals to get things, but that's part of the problem. Because yeah. if it's like, oh, well, Louise gets a house because she knows a TD, that's problematic. Yeah. And I do think sometimes... I don't know any TDs, by the way. <laughs> this is... Me and Holly just met tonight. And TDs don't get to decide who gets a house. <laughs> sometimes they just take the credit if they do. It's kind of how it works. And that's just a really big part of the problem. Yeah. It's like anything. So if a, like a housing development is built by a developer, ideally in a country with policies, you say, if you get planning for that, you also have to build basic infrastructure around the place like playgrounds and stuff to build communities, you know. Mm. Um, but instead, they don't have to do that. And then it all happens on a really ad hoc basis. So mm. people in the community come to the TDs and say, we, we need a playground. And then people like, might raise that in the door. They may or may not yeah. get a playground. But when they do, all of the local TDs will turn up and take the credit. And like that system then is kind of useful in a weird way to politicians because they go around and take the credit for... And it happens less, I think, in Dublin than in the kind of more rural areas or whatever, mm. but this kind of turning up, taking credit, or someone gets a house and they take the credit for that. It's all kind of part of a really dysfunctional system that could be different, but in a way it kind of works for them. So, so when are we going to get to pick a new government? <laughs> 2025 should be the general election, but um, obviously... It could happen at any time, like the local election happens every five years regardless, it can't be taken down, but like, uh, unless the government for some reason collapses, it'll be 2025. And how does, sorry now, now yeah. I'm just asking basic like, yeah. um, <laughs> secondary school questions, <laughs> but uh, some of us were, spend most of our education in America and have a few gaps in our knowledge, <laughs> um, I've definitely asked you for this on the podcast yeah. before, but how would the government collapse, like how would that happen? So, for example, on housing and things like that, if there's a motion of no confidence yeah. in the government, for example, then, you know, like at the moment they've got independents who are supporting them and holding up the, the current government. And like, although it's denied, it's kind of public knowledge as well that they got stuff for their constituency. So it's exactly what I was talking about there. Mm. <laughs> this kind of problematic, you know, but if they decided basically, I don't think that my constituents would forgive me for supporting the government in this vote... Mm. Um, then they might not support the government. There could be, you know, other TDs. You see sometimes people breaking the whip, as they call it, yeah. and then uh, the government would collapse. And that presumably illustrates why it's important for, you know, maybe like maybe nobody here is going to get into politics. Mm. I mean, I would love to see, obviously, more women in politics, and I know there are men here too. Hi, guys. Um, but, you know, that lobbying say so like oh as you were talking about lobbying there i was thinking well this is this is why childcare is such a problem i think because the parents who are paying the massive amounts for childcare are absolutely exhausted and don't have it in them to add anything else onto their agenda and then by the time they're not paying the childcare anymore they're just so relieved they don't ever want to think about it again so i think that that's you know but that's one one area where yeah. you could get a lobby group together and you really could try and and, and make a difference but even things by the sounds of that even things like like contact your TD actually does make a difference? Oh, it does. Yeah. I don't think people realise that as well. And sometimes we, like with the, a lot of the mother and baby homes legislation, stuff like that, we'd organise the email yeah. campaigns and like they are incredibly effective. And like yeah. ultimately, 
if you think about your politicians at the end of the day, and we talked about the kind of contortion of principle and personality and everything once people go into politics, and that's because they just want to keep everybody happy. Yeah. Um, because they don't want to lose any support or any votes because then they'll lose their seat and that's like their livelihood and all of the different things. So if they receive loads of emails about a particular issue, they'll just go, I don't want to lose support. I don't want to lose votes. This is important. Mm. If nobody gets onto them, they might not even know what they're voting on on that Wednesday evening. So it's really like impactful. And I think like that when you feel hopeless and different things like yeah. that, the, like you know, sending an email, sending a letter, like telling your candidates when they knock on your doors, all of those things has much bigger impact, I think, than I ever realised before I went into politics. Sorry, I need to come back to that yeah. there. Um, they might not know what they're voting for on a Wednesday Well, I, that's probably maybe an exaggeration, but like we go in and there's a, yeah. a voting block and like ordinarily uh, there's a party whip who will be looking at all of the different votes and figuring out like there could be 20 amendments in on this piece of legislation and 20 amendments in on this piece of legislation and there's a vote called on this one and then on the overall bill and like it's fairly complicated but if you get 27 emails about this one thing you'd be going what's that yeah <laughs> better make sure you know better look at that or better kind of you know see what that is and it just becomes more on the agenda and then like every week there's the parliamentary party meeting so if the parliamentary party meeting then on Wednesday before the votes and we're saying I'm getting lots of emails about this yeah um you know I think maybe we've got this could be we've got this wrong or how do we explain this or you know mm. um it just has an impact like I think we kind of forget as well that like the keys in the word like they're public representatives so they're there to represent you you know mm. and it's important then for like us as constituents or the electorate or whatever to, to let people know what does represent us because otherwise they can kind of, uh, I think, even feel like people didn't even notice or don't really care when particular, mm. you know, piece of legislation or passed or changed they're made because they haven't even heard from anyone and they yeah. think there's not a particular public appetite for that. Yeah. I think it's, I know some of my questions are kind of basic, but I think it's important to for us to have a greater understanding um, mm. of how we can actually have an influence. Because I think that sense of kind of despair that I mentioned at the beginning and that sense of hopelessness, you know, the only way really to combat that is to see people who make you feel hopeful, but also to see that there are things that you can actually do, that you can, you know, make a difference, even if you don't have the time or the inclination mm. to, you know, knock on doors or, you know, whatever the case may be, but, you know, be just become the leader of a political party in a few short years, like not all of us are, are going to have that skill, um, but that even an email can make a difference. A massive difference, yeah. yeah. Uh, not to mention that, like registering to vote, voting, yeah. <laughs> asking people to vote makes a huge difference. When you think about it, if somebody you knew and trusted said, I think you should vote that, you'd be significantly more likely to than previous to somebody saying that to you. Yeah. Um, and that kind of people power was really demonstrated during our social referendums and showed yeah. how kind of uh, progressive a country we really are. Mm. And then not to mention, of course, because like, I think a bit like going into politics, being in a political party can feel like something that's just like not a th thing you would do. Yeah. I certainly felt like that. Like wouldn't have even occurred to me to join a political party. Because like, what does that even mean? Well, What's, what do, actually, yeah, what yeah. does it mean? So like... Very good question. So, like, it can mean kind of as little or as much as you want it to be. So you could literally be like, 
uh, I'm a member of a political party, but like I have a full-time job and a dog and a kid or whatever it might be. Like I have no time to do anything else. So I don't, you like, you might feel like, oh, I don't want to join in case then it's like, I'm expected to attend a branch meeting or knock on a door. Absolutely not. You can be that little involved or you could be enormously involved. Like you could be the chair of the branch in your constituency. You could be a canvas lead in your constituency. You could make the sandwiches for the count. There's kind of every type of member of a party. And ultimately, it's actually lots of like-minded people. Uh, a really kind of like quite nice social thing as well, because you're meeting people who are fighting for the same kind of change and really positive because mm. you're working towards it. Mm-hmm. So it can be a nice place to kind of really channel the kind of frustration or the hopelessness or whatever it might be mm. and really can have a massively positive impact because like that, I think we feel like we need a huge amount of this or that or whatever to get a seat in an area or whatever. Like that, myself, Pamela and Claire, (laughs) in the space of a year, had a council seat and a dual seat in what was considered one of the most conservative constituencies in the country. The, like it's, I don't mean to make it like super cheesy, but this, that expression about whoever said a small number of thoughtful citizens can't change the world, we're wrong. Mm. It's the only thing that ever has. But like it is, it's just about a few people getting together and doing something about it that makes an enormous difference. Mm. And joining a political party is what I realised during that kind of door knocking for repeal exercise was the way to do it. Like this is how we change it. And. Yeah, like the, the the members we have, say in my branch in Cork Southwest, like there's a few I've never met. They're just joining to to show a support, mm. but having the numbers then when there's like a need for, like then in your for example, if you join in your area, mm-hmm. and then the local elections are coming up, and there's three different people who want to be the candidate, you've got to vote, mm. you know, and which candidate it is who you think's got the best chance so you can yeah. like have an impact in that way or potentially become a candidate. Yeah. Or, you know, there's so many different types of members of a party that it's difficult to explain, but I certainly thought before I joined uh, the Social Democrats that you needed a special qualification or invitation yeah. to be a part of something like that. Um, and I kind of realised that case. once I looked into it, yeah. that that's not the case. Okay, I've got a few kind of slightly gossipy questions now. Um, (laughs) If you have a big row in the doll, Mm -hmm. and I know it's all very, like, organised and civil, are you, like, friendly with the the person you're rowing with afterwards? Like, (laughs) (laughs) kind of depends, you know. I do think um, it's one of the most unusual work environments because you're just around people who, like, you're really working against and, like sometimes really dislike and then you know um like there's been times when um I find like when when other people in the in the workplace are really nasty to me outside of the chamber that's a horrible work environment yeah (laughs) so I don't express things like that most of the time (laughs) outside of the chamber because I think that respectfully people should be able to walk down the corridor yeah. and I don't want anyone like I don't want to have an impact on somebody's mental health yeah you know what I mean it's kind of like yeah. there has to be a line yeah um but certainly like when it's things like I remember with the uh the mother and baby homes redress scheme that is like randomly excluded people who spent less than six months in an institution yeah. from any kind of redress after the kind of horrendous things like illegal vaccine trials, your child being taken, all those things. I found it difficult to not raise that with people when I saw them, yeah. like, in the corridor and stuff. And, of course, there'll be other times like that. There still is. But I think 
having experienced the feeling of people being outwardly nasty to me and yeah. it was about um, Greyhound Racing funding. Mm. Um, I just thought, you know, regardless of what anyone's doing in there, we have to have, like, a democracy. Mm. <laughs> and so if people get elected with those kind of beliefs and their, you know, whatever, then that's fair. Mm. And I should debate them in the dole and on the airwaves and everywhere else. But if somebody wants to walk in to work in the morning, then, you know, you should try and be a bit respectful. Yeah. Um, I have heard, now, obviously, the Social Democrats... <laughs> are quite a small party, but I have heard stories from the various Ardesh that they are like massive sessions, right? <laughs> like people are up all night drinking and socialising. Social, in the You name. complete the fifth, I mean. <laughs> okay, yes, that's a confirmation, I think. Um, <laughs> um, and also, you know, do you develop real friendships kind of with the, you know, your colleagues in the doll? 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I suppose because it is a really unique job as well, like to have people like who know what you're going through, or what it's like is I think really important in any job. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, for example, um, Jennifer Whitmore, who's a TD in my party, is somebody who I would go to for advice, go to for lunch, like yeah. all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and like... Uh, Catherine Roshin, mm. similarly, like incredibly yeah. supportive, and yeah, you grow. I think you grow very close in those kind of environments because of the nature of the work, yeah. and you quite a lot in common. Yeah. Um, if there's anything that you haven't said that you would like people to kind of go away with tonight, what is there anything? Um, I think just because a lot of it has been about like that disillusionment mm. and um, hopelessness. Like, to just remember that one thing, <laughs> that we are in charge of how the country's run by virtue of who we elect to run it, and that is a really great thing that we have. Um, we just need to kind of uh, grab it <laughs> a little bit, and I think now is the time because, like the tide is turning. The Irish politics is at, like a kind of a moment of change and it's like up to us what that kind of change is and everybody else as well, but don't underestimate the impact you can have on it mm -hmm. and make sure that you kind of, in this exact moment in time, kind of exercise it because I think it's going to be a very pinnacle one. Well, thank you so much, Holly Kearns. Thank you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.